good to see you all here today. I found it personally a bit difficult to write my sermon this week. Every once in a while it feels like it's an extra challenging week, but this is maybe not because of the reason that some of the other weeks might have been a big challenge. The reason is because John 1.14, uh, the main verse we're going to focus on, is one of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture. I just love John 1.14. It's rich and it's profound. It's always captured my attention and my imagination and even uh, my, my theological interest. And so when I was uh, doing a course in seminary on John's literature, I chose to write a, a 28-page paper on the temple and tabernacle imagery in the prologue of John. And that, that is a little bit about me. <laughs> I've long since wanted to do this passage justice. And so I think without even realizing it through most of the week, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to try to do a good job to do this justice but it's really kind of besides the point. I don't have to put pressure on myself to have an amazing sermon because having a good sermon isn't why this verse is one of my favorites. It's my favorite because of what it means. So there's a very good chance this may not be your favorite sermon that you've ever heard. You may not like my analogies. You might not find my jokes funny. My thoughts might appear scattered, and I may stumble over my words even more than usual. Lord knows it happens from time to time. Those things may be true, but it won't matter. Because what truly matters is that our goal today is being able to truly comprehend with our heart and our soul and our mind the promise, the fact, the history, and the hope that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's our goal. That's our job. And my hope is that at the end of our time together, you can leave here saying, hey, John 1.14 is one of my favorite verses too, not because of what was preached, but of what it means to me. So let's do this together. Let's unpack these verses. And I, I actually am going to rearrange some of what we're focusing on. We have, have two more sermons here in this series today, and then Christmas Eve, we'll wrap up our time in John chapter 1. And, and we're going to look this morning at verses 14 and then skipping down to verse 18. And the reason for that is is that the theme or the idea of those verses really complement each other. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the verses in between those two and talk about what John means when he says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. But really, the beginning of verse 14 unpacks everything that we need to know, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. John goes back to that title of the Word that brings us back right to the very beginning of his gospel. And and we need to recognize that up until now, the Apostle John has has spent great amount of time and energy and attention to explain and to convince all of us of the divinity of Christ. The Word, Jesus, was with God. He was pre-existent of creation. He's eternal. He was an integral part of creation. This wasn't just a bystander. He was part of this creating force of the Godhead, and he was with God, and the Word was God. All of this is to say Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is fully divine. And then in verse 14, we say that the Word, who is Jesus, is not only divine, but the Word became flesh, meaning he took on physical form. He became a human being. And so without detracting from any of these arguments and ideas that Jesus is fully divine, without hedging any of his bets, John highlights the truth that Jesus was also fully human. Born as a baby, 
Mary and Joseph were told, were, were told that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We learn that in Matthew 1.18 and verse 20. And so what does it mean now that the word Jesus would be God, and yet the word Jesus would take on flesh? That the word Jesus would have a true heavenly Father, be conceived of the Holy Spirit, and yet the, the word Jesus was also born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully human. The theological term for God taking on flesh is the incarnation, or as I've chosen to call it at this point in the sermon, what incarnation? So follow me for more redneck theology puns. That's what you all came to hear this morning, right? What incarnation? Here we go. This is an important idea. It's, it's, it's really a theological foundation for us as Christians. And John 1.14 is the foundation and the bedrock of Scripture that allows us to understand what this means, that Jesus would be fully God and be fully human. It's not only John that helps us flesh out this idea, also pun intended. Uh, the Apostle Paul has something to say about it as well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, where he's talking about the humility of Christ that we ought to model. And he also goes on to explain some profound ideas and truths of what it means for Jesus to have taken on flesh. Here's what Paul has to say, picking up in verse 6, talking about Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says Jesus emptied himself, that he was, again, preexistent of all creation. He was with God. He was in the form of God. He was God. And so when, when Paul says that equality with God was not something to be grasped, he's not referring to something that Jesus did not have and then wanted to take hold of. He's instead talking about something that Jesus rightfully had as his own, and yet he didn't hang on to it too tightly. He was willing to let it go. He was with God in glory, at the Father's right hand, everything that we hope for, everything that we long for and aspire to experience, that is what Jesus has always had from eternity past. And he willingly left that and stooped down to our level. He emptied himself by leaving heaven, but also by giving up some of the advantages of divinity, even though he never stopped being divine. So again, we're going to make sure that we have a, hopefully a proper theological understanding. Jesus was fully human and fully God. That was who he is. That's the nature, the essence of who he is. And that has never stopped being the case. He never stopped being divine in order to be fully human. But he did empty himself of some of these divine advantages that he would have in order to experience the full human life. So I've heard an analogy uh, by Dan Spader that I, I liked. He said, imagine you had credit card. And it wasn't just a gold card. It wasn't just a platinum card, but it would be a, a God card. See, there's no limit to this credit card. You can just keep tapping it and then grabbing what you want. You know, tap it and go, tap it and go. In fact, not only is there no limit, but you never have to pay anything back. And this could be at your disposal. And each and every step of the way, you could have, you could do whatever you wanted to do. That would be the God card. And Jesus would have this card because he was with God and he was God. And while he never ceased to be God and who he was, he gave up that card. He emptied himself in order to know and to experience and to show what it means to live a perfect and full human life. Jesus emptied himself and took on flesh. And so we have a good picture of 
the incarnation, fully God and fully, divine, or, and fully human. And we see this also um, kind of reiterated in Paul's writings in Colossians 2, verse 9, again talking about Jesus, where he says profoundly, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God dwells in full human form. That's what we mean by the incarnation. That's how we hold both of these things to be true simultaneously. Jesus, according to John and also now according to Paul, not only emptied himself, but when he did, he took on the likeness of men. He was human in every way. He lived the full human experience. At the men's feast that we had just a few weeks ago, it was a wonderful time. A group of guys got together and we had some food and I did a short talk there. Uh, they didn't know that they signed up to hear me speak again, but I surprised them. And, and we, we gathered around, and what I wanted to do for the men that evening was to show that Jesus was not just fully human, he was, he was a man. And so if we are aspiring to be Christ-like men, then we need to know and understand and follow the model that Jesus would give us as men. And so my talk really highlighted the fact that Jesus lived this human experience, and he, he, he shared in some of these things that we all go through. For example, Jesus grew up in a family. He obeyed his parents. He worshiped God. He worked as a tradesman, as a carpenter. He got hungry and thirsty, went to parties, even drank some wine, made friends, celebrated holidays, and like every athlete during a post-game interview, he certainly loved his mom. All of these things are true of Jesus. He lived this way. He understands what it's like to be human because he is fully human. And so God incarnate, God who has emptied himself and taken on human form, is now a relatable God because he perfectly understands our experience because he perfectly experienced it too. And it wasn't just these common human things like, like family and, and, and parties and holidays and religion. No, it was even the hard things of life. Jesus, fully human, knows the brokenness of the world. He knows the power of temptation. He knows the grief of the loss of a loved one. He was also, he knows the betrayal of a friend. He knows the abandonment of friends when he was at his greatest time of need. He knows what self-sacrifice looks like. And he bled and he died on our behalf. Jesus, fully human, knows what it means to be fully human. He is a relatable God. He is God made flesh. And so we can relate to him easier. He is not some distant, unapproachable God. He is a God who truly emptied himself and came down to our level. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can say that God moved into the neighborhood. Well, why? Because that word for dwelt has that same root word as tabernacle. And so we could translate this, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so John very intentionally wants us to say that, that in the same way that the tabernacle was this localized presence of God in the middle of his people, that when Jesus was born and walked on this earth, he was the localized presence of God who walked among his people. And especially during our time through Revelation, we unpacked a bit of this tabernacle um, understanding and importance and theme that continues to go, and, and we, we, we remembered that it was the throne room, the presence of God on earth in a very real, tangible way. And then wherever uh, that presence of God would go, the people would follow. And when the nation of Israel, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, they would set up camp and then have the tabernacle, the presence of God, 
right in the middle, in the midst of the people. This was what the tabernacle was. And then in Jesus, he tabernacled among us as well, which is why Jesus can truly be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not just a nice thing to say, not just a nice Christmas verse to memorize and recite this time of year, but a promise that in human history, Jesus was here, that God entered into our story and could be seen and heard, touched, felt, followed. That happened, and it changed absolutely everything. It's not only a truth about when Jesus was walking on earth, the truth is that God is, he is still God with us. And will refer once again back to the very first sermon in Revelation chapter 1, where John, later in life, was given this vision of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, which represented the church, his people. John was reminding the early church and reminding us today that that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and that Jesus, the resurrected, risen Lord, still dwells among us now in a very real way, different than before. And how, would it have, how awesome would it have been to be part of that first Christmas story? It's different, but it is still true. The Word still dwells among us. He is still God with us. He's in the midst of the lampstands of the church of his people. And I believe that the fact that Jesus took on flesh to be with us is an incredibly personal and relational. So if the fact that, that Jesus emptied himself and took on human flesh and human form to, to live the human experience made him relatable, I can understand him better, then the fact that he dwells with us is relational. I can be with him in a personal relationship. The way that Eugene Peterson in the message describes this verse, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, which is exactly where I shamelessly stole his idea and made it my sermon point for this morning. God moved into the neighborhood. And that word, that Greek word, which is related to tabernacle, literally means to take up residence. So Eugene Peterson has hit the nail on the head that Jesus would empty himself and not just come down to our level, to be aloof and to, and, and to be judgmental. He came down to our level to move into our neighborhood, to rub shoulders with us, to get to know us, to be in relationship with us. It is a relationship that Jesus came to establish. So how did and how does Jesus transform lives? He does it by getting up close and personal through relationship and through close physical proximity. He gets right into people's business, right into their life, right into the place where we meet him most, and he meets us there. The word became flesh and moved right next door, close at hand. How do we as a church carry on his ministry? Because we want to do this. We want to continue to share the good news of Jesus. We, we, we long to see other people's lives continually transformed by the hope that we have in him. And how do we do this? We do it in the exact same way. We get up close, and personal. That's how Jesus changes lives. That's how he has asked us to cooperate with him as he still changes lives, which is one of the many reasons, one of the main reasons why all the COVID restrictions we endured over two years were so difficult. Because it was amazing and it was better than nothing that we could live stream and we could connect technologically and we could still profoundly worship in spirit and in truth and be knit together. That was all real and it happened, but we missed being next to each other. 
And why is that? Because when Jesus became flesh, he showed his desire and his design that we would truly move into the neighborhood, be beside each other, live life together, give hugs, give high fives, spur each other on, get up close and personal. That's how we do church. That's how Jesus changes the world. And what might that look like? There's a few different examples, I think, of what we could call incarnational ministry would look like. But the example that I've long uh, looked up to is that of Harry Lahotsky. Has anyone in here ever heard of Harry Lahotsky before? A few hands raised. It's good. He was someone who uh, was doing ministry in the inner city of Winnipeg. Um, and and, and as, as a fate would have it, I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, as the Lord would have it, uh, when Karen and I were living in Winnipeg and we were engaged, uh, we were actually going to a young adult group and one of his children was there when he was terminally ill. And we were in that small group with one of his children when he passed away. And so we learned a lot about Harry Lahotsky at the very end of his life. And he was a man who saw all the needs of the inner city of Winnipeg. And then he also saw the way that most of the affluent Christians in Winnipeg, in Winnipeg would seek to meet those needs. So they would all, we would all kind of drive in, in our big fancy vehicles. And we'd go and we would uh, donate our, our money. And we'd give of our time, and we'd go to soup kitchens, and we would do things to meet tangible needs, to share the gospel, and then we would drive in our big fancy cars back to all of our fancy communities with our large, comfortable homes and the safety that those neighborhoods brought. And Harry Lahotsky wanted to do it different. He was compelled to do it differently. And he looked at Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelling among his people, and then he moved into that neighborhood. He brought his whole young family into the inner city of Winnipeg. And he has lots of stories of, of the times in which he has been placed and his family was placed in, in physical harm. Then the harm could have come their way. It was dangerous. It wasn't safe. It was uncomfortable. It was not comfortable. But he changed lives because he was willing to get up close and personal. And that's not to say that Harry Lahotsky was the best. It was to say that he understood what it meant that Jesus came down to our level and dwelt among us. So get to know your neighbors. Host people for dinner. Give hugs and high fives. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has never been meant, never been meant to stay at arm's length. What else can we learn from John 1.14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. So if we look at this theme of tabernacle, which John has drawn to our attention, we know that the tabernacle was not just about God's presence, though that was certainly part of what was signified there. It was also about his glory. And if you read through some parts of the Old Testament, you know that when the children of Israel completed the tabernacle and when Solomon completed the temple, as soon as those places were complete, then the glory cloud of the presence of God, the glorious presence of God, his Shekinah glory, filled the Holy of Holies. And no one could enter in because the glorious, overwhelming, awe-inspiring presence of God was there. It was about his presence. It was also about his glory. Even ongoing, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement to ask for forgiveness and atonement for the people of Israel and their sins. The glory of God used to be present in the tabernacle. It used to be present in the temple. And now it is present in the Word of God full glory. And if you're interested in learning more, I've got 28 pages of, of goodness for you. Just tap me on the shoulder, I'll email you my paper. But for now, we'll leave it there. We have seen the glory of God. 
up until this point in history, it was impossible for human beings to see God's glory. What we miss here is the audacity that John would say that we have seen the glory of God. It is outrageous. It is unbelievable that he would say this is true because written into the context of, of Jew, Judaism and written to the context of what we know about God, no one can see the face of God and live. We're going to go back to Exodus, and this is, this is the experience of Moses. Moses, who knew God as well as anyone who walked this earth could know God. Could he see God's glory? Not even he. Let's read this story in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, well, I'm going to actually go to, do I start? Yeah, there we go. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So close relationship with the Lord. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of that rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If anyone deserved to see the glory and the face of the Lord, it would be Moses. But he could not control, he could not understand that. He could not comprehend it. He could not handle seeing the full glory of the Lord. And so he got a glimpse of his back. He got a glimpse of this glory. And even that glimpse left him radiating brightness when he came down from the mountain. That's the glory of God. And that's the same glory of God that John has the audacity to say that in Jesus, we see this glory in full. That should absolutely blow us away. As John describes in verse 18, the Son has made the Father known. The Son has made the Father known. No one has ever seen God, remember? No one can see His face and live. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now we can see God's glory. Now we can know Him in full because the Word became flesh. And it is the Son, the only Son, that can do that. If you go back to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only Son. And if you have an, maybe an older translation, like the King James or the New King James, it will say the only begotten Son, which is a unique term or a phrase for John. And it shows up in important places like John 1.14 and John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. Now, I don't want us to get hung up on this idea of being begotten because at face value, to be begotten means to, to come into being, to have a, have a beginning. And, and John has already made it very clear that, that Christ is eternal, has pre-existed, creation. He is not begotten in the sense that he has a beginning. He's using this phrase to highlight the unique nature between the Father and the Son. He is the one and only Son. There is a relationship between Father and Son that, that we will never get to truly emulate in, in perfection. So yes, we are called co-heirs with Christ. 
We are called sons and daughters of God. And that is all true, but there is still a unique, unique nature between the Father and the Son. And he is the only Son of God, and it's only through Jesus that we can see the glory of God and know him for who he says he is. It is only Jesus who was with God in the beginning. Only Jesus who participated with the Father in creation. Only Jesus who is God made flesh. Only Jesus who reveals us to us the face of God. And while so much of the promise of John 1, 14 and 18 is physical, that the word took on flesh, that he entered human history, we shouldn't get over physical with this idea of seeing the face of God. To make God known is not just to show us what he looks like, it is to reveal what he is like, what his character is like. So what is God's character? What is his heart? What are his priorities? What does he love? What does he despise? In Christ, we get to know God better. We get to know him truly. And Jesus is the only way, the one and only Son. So perhaps as we gather today, you're someone who doesn't really know if you know God at all. Perhaps you've never placed your trust in Christ. Perhaps you've never looked to him and only him as this avenue to understand who the creator of the universe may be. Now, it's say pursue this. It's the hope of Christmas. Or maybe, as we gather today, you have had a bad first impression of, of Jesus because of the imperfection of his followers. And you've had some times in church in which it has not brought you to a closer understanding of God, but maybe has, has pushed you further away. And I would say that is unfortunate and my heart grieves for you. But don't allow the imperfection of the followers of Jesus to deter you from the fact that in him and him alone, God is made known. So get to know God better through Jesus. We need to understand who God really is. When I went to a Bible school, I was the oldest in my, my home. It was the first time I ever left home. And I remember when my family drove away and I felt quite alone. Life had changed in an instant. And so in the first few weeks of Bible school, you're very interested, and in, in, I was very interested in, in seeing who I would befriend, who I could really get to know, who would be those people that would replace what my family had given me as love and support and caring relationships. Who would be those people for me now? And so in the first couple of weeks, you're always saying, hey, will, will I really connect with that person or that person? It's interesting to me that very rarely those people that we meet at the very beginning of our, our Bible school experience were the people that we really got to know in the end. And during these first few weeks, there was one guy in particular that I, that I, just, I really didn't like. He had a bad first impression. The first thing I saw of him, his name was Mark. He ran down my dorm room hall. He was from a different dorm. And he was wearing a bathrobe and a gorilla mask, shooting people with an airsoft gun. And I was like, what a dork. Like, this guy, I am not going to like this guy at all. That was my first impression what I thought from outside looking in might be true about him? Well, actually, through a mutual friend, I got to know Mark a little bit better without the, the robe, you know, fully properly clothed and without the gorilla mask so I could see what he looked like and without, uh, you know, the nuisance of shooting me with an airsoft gun. He was actually quite a wonderful guy. And he soon became one of my very close friends. There were four of us. We did everything together in our first year of Bible school. He was one of them. He remains to me today an essential friend. Someone that I need to encourage me, to challenge me, to support me, to spur me on. And I needed just to get to know him better in order for that to happen. I needed to not stay at a distance and say, well, that person isn't worth getting to know. 
I needed to overcome some negative first impressions. And so when Jesus, one and only Son of God, comes down to our level, moves into our neighborhood, and shows us what God is like, we need to take him up on the offer. We need to get to know him better. We need to understand who God really is. Not what we think he might be from a distance. Not what negative first impressions might lead us to believe, but who God really is. And when we understand that, we will truly understand all the hope that we have in him. Get to know him. Get to know Jesus because it's worth it. Last point that I want to make is about the first and the second advents of Jesus. When we celebrate that first advent, the coming of Christ, here at Christmas time, we also celebrate what his second advent or his second coming means for us. And so, yeah, there was a reason I chose to go to John right after Revelation because there are some distinct parallels. And so I want us to be reminded, now that John has talked about what it meant for Jesus to, to come the first time, I want us to be reminded of what John has already told us is important about Jesus returning again. And so I'm not going to have these scriptures up on the screen, but I want you to really, even if you would help, close your eyes and listen to these connections because they are important. At the first advent, Jesus came to dwell with his people. And at the second advent, Jesus will, will come to truly dwell with his people. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What will God do? He will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them. It's the same word. He will move into their neighborhood, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. At the first advent, Jesus came to reveal God's glory. In the second advent, Jesus will come to usher us into God's glory in fullness. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. At the first advent, Jesus came to show us God's face to make him known. And at the second advent, Jesus will come to allow us to see God's face. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. All of what we celebrate at Christmas is all of what we look forward to when Christ returns. So we're going to sing one more song together today, and it will be, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that is not just a song about what has happened. It is a song of hope, of anticipation, and of longing of what will happen again. You see, when we went to Philippians to get Paul's understanding of the incarnation, we stopped his thought halfway. And I'd like you to stand and be ready to sing, and I'll share with you the remainder of those verses.
In being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm-hmm.